Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. My lovely Advent hymn reminds us of the majesty, the awesome uh, glory of our God as the cherubim, the angels bow before him with us. It calls us to confess our sins. Isaiah 64, once again, hear God's word. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Thus far the reading of God's word. In the liturgical calendar, Advent is is called a penitential season. Like Lent leads up to Easter, Advent leads up to Christmas. First the fast, and then the feast. Traditionally, the church focuses on John the Baptist's ministry during Advent, announcing the Advent of Christ. And what did John call for? Repentance. That's our theme this morning, and we need to face the facts. Repentance does not fit well with the world's program at all. Uh, Consider that in two ways. First, consider Christmas. Out in the shops, out on the street, December is a festive time of getting presents and going to parties. And that's great. Uh, That's as it should be. But yet, is there room? Let every heart prepare him room for Jesus. Our hearts are plenty full with family fun, Christmas trees, all the trimmings, lots of activity. Penitential season? It doesn't quite fit. And second, consider also the whole COVID thing. One lesson most clear to me as a pastor through the COVID situation is that God has been calling his world to humble itself before him and to repent of our sins. Our response has either been to go political or to convince ourselves that we can fix it without God's help. Nothing even close to repentance. God steps into all of that at Advent and says to us, you are not ready for me to come. And you should get ready. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel if you're able, and I'll pray our prayer of confession this morning. our sermon text, and I'm going to pray a prayer of illumination before we begin to read. Heavenly Father, blessed God, you have caused all of Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may hear them in such a way that we read, we mark, we learn, we inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. 
Luke chapter 3, the first 20 verses, a classic Advent text, the first six verses are the lectionary reading for this Sunday. Hear God's infallible word once again. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, that does, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Quite the dramatic passage of scripture we have before us. For the next three Sundays uh, in our Advent season, I'd like to focus on a few Advent figures. John the Baptist, probably Mary at some point, maybe one or two others. And, and also the theme of living different. We're called to live different. And I realize that's grammatically incorrect, and it's kind of a cheap spoof spin-off of uh, Apple Corporation's Think Different uh, from years ago, the advertisement. That's what I was thinking of. Live different. That's the key. And that's what uh, we're looking at here in Luke chapter 3. We live different by repenting of our sins in all of life. In all of life. 
So we're going to uh, exposit, go uh, through this verse by verse, and then spend some time at the end reflecting on what repentance is all about. So the first two verses, we have a lot of uh, historical names, right? The timing is documented here very carefully. Uh, we would simply say in our modern age, 307 AD, or in the year 586 BC, and we'd pinpoint the number. Uh, Luke instead gives us the list, and, and so by, by the differing time frames, when all these people ruled in different places, he's really narrowed down to a, a frame of five to ten years, maybe two even, of when the word of God came to John. So the point is that history is entered uh, there, there's an actual historical timeline going on, and God, the Word of God, comes to John at a certain point in history. Uh, and this is the part of the incarnation that's often hard to grasp. The, the infinite God who created time, who's outside of time, that in itself is hard for us to imagine, uh, that God enters time itself. Uh, we often think about God entering space, God, Jesus appears in Bethlehem, right? Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb. There, there's an entering of, of space there and history. But it's, as the sci-fi people like to say, it's space-time. God had to enter time as much as he had to enter space. It's hard to grasp, and it's part of the mystery of the Incarnation. Well, the point I want to focus on more here is at, at the end of verse 2. What happened at that point? The Word of God came to John. That is a huge event. Much of Scripture is taken up with it. Right? The Word of God makes the world in the first place. And the Word of God comes to Noah and to Abraham and to Samuel and to David and to many of the prophets. And, God, and the word, that Word starts making promises of a Savior to come. God with us. Isaiah 40, you have it all over again. A voice crying in the wilderness. God is coming. Get ready. And, and as much as saying get ready, Isaiah 40 is saying, I'm going to make every path clear. The, the, the way is made clear for God to come to you and for you to go to God. That's what's going on there. Everybody's going to see the glory of God come. So this is a huge thing. We need to never, ever minimize or casually sl slide past. The word of God has come to us. That's huge. Huge, and I never want to de-emphasize it. I've, I've been to a few other church services in the last month or so on vacation or other things. And, and there's, there's so much I appreciate about going to church and not being up front leading the service. It's always a refreshing thing. It's, it feeds my soul. Uh, but often I'm, I'm going to churches that are uh, less orthodox than I'd like. Uh, and so I find some things frustrating too. And one of those is, is uh, there's always, uh, the word of God is, seems to be uh, brought down a, a level or two. And maybe, you know, I think they're doing that on purpose because, well, the word of God came down to us, right? So they're thinking, let's bring it down to normal life, right? But there's so much emphasis on connecting with normal life. And, and then we'll dip into scripture for a second every now and then, and then go back to talking about normal life most of the time. We're not talking about the word very much. We're talking about our lives. And it's, it's frustrating. And we, we intersperse scripture with casual jokes about everyday life and 
I was, you know, sitting in my dining room yesterday and looked out the window and saw X and, and that kind of thing. Now, now, the word addresses our everyday life, of course. But to mingle it with small talk in a worship service about your latest cup of coffee just demeans the word. The word of God, we are to exalt. I've, again, been watching some... Um, uh, political uh, TV fiction. And when the president walks into the room, when the president of the United States walks into the room, you don't just stay leaned back in your chair and say, hey, Joe. You don't do that. No matter what we see on social media about all the harsh criticism of the president or other politicians, when the president walks into the room, you stand up and you say, good morning, Mr. President. And you do that for a reason because there's authority in that office. And when we read the Bible, we give it the respect that it deserves because of who it's from. It's from the king of all kings. And, and most of the time we stand up. That's why we stand up when we read scripture. And I say, hear the inerrant word of God because I want to set it apart from what I'm saying every other word in the service. That's the word of God. So, this is a huge thing, the end of verse 2. The word of God coming is a huge event. And it comes to John the Baptist, and he has a message. Now, just an aside here for now, the advent, the coming of the word of God in another sense is a huge deal too, right? The advent of the living word, Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. And we'll look at that more and more closer as we get to Christmas. For now, let's stick with John and go on to verse 3. So, uh, John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, there's a parallel passage in Matthew 3 uh, where there's a bit more detail and it's put a bit differently. And the message is put in a direct quote from, from John uh, when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's John's uh, first uh, and basic message, one word, repent. Uh, and, and he gives a lot of reasons why. And then he gives some instruction that we'll get to in a moment. But repentance is the basic call. And then verses 4 to 6, uh, we get the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, John is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40. The glory of God is going to be revealed to all people, it says in Isaiah 40 verse 5. That's referring to Jesus. That Jesus is the glory of God. And everyone saw him. And John is the voice crying in the wilderness. That's, uh, Luke is making that assertion directly. So that uh, brings us up to verse 7. And here at verse 7, we see uh, what else John says. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, it, it's, I, I get a lot of, out of this, uh, this passage from R.C. Sproul. He's uh, preached on this, and I've heard it recently. Uh, I like what he says. He says, uh, John doesn't begin his message by saying, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't begin his message with one of my favorite sayings, Dearly beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'll begin a sermon that way or think to. No, John doesn't start that way at all. Brood of vipers. Whoa, nest of snakes. Another way to put it. Or if you're theologically attuned, you offspring of the devil from Genesis 3, right? The, the seed of the serpent are going to fight against the seed of the woman for all time. And you're on the wrong side. Wow. 
And, and there's an, an additional question that makes this even more interesting. Uh, again, the Luke and the Matthew passages. Luke 3 says, uh, Jesus, uh, John said to the crowds. Matthew 3 says, when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out, he said to them. So there's a bit of a question here. Does John say this to everybody or to everybody, but especially to the Pharisees and Sadducees? That's kind of how I take it, since both need to be true. Uh, so John is, is saying, at least to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and probably to all of Israel, what are you doing out here? You're, on, you're not on my side. I'm bringing you the word of God, and you're on the other side of the war. And the, and the point of that, of course, is they need to repent. It's, it's in our repentance that we change defect from the, the, the army of Satan and start fighting for the right team. So that's, that's John expanding on the repentance theme. Verse 8, he brings in, uh, he heads off at the pass one of the excuses that we always have against repentance, right? Don't start saying you're children of Abraham, right? And so you see the immediate objection. What are you doing calling me a, a, a serpent of the devil, a, a son of the devil? I'm a child of Abraham. I know whose child I am. I'm an Israelite. I'm literally a child of Abraham. This objection has a lot of force. We often tend to overlook this. I'm a child of Abraham. Well, you may be in a physical sense. But if you're not repenting, if you're not seeking God's ways, it doesn't matter what race you are. You're against God. We cannot appeal to our heritage, to our Western civilization, to our own past efforts, uh, to our believing parents, to our dedication, our self-denial, our toil, our labor. We can't appeal to any of this to make up for our sins. God has to see faith and repentance in ourselves. And that faith and repentance leading to good fruit. Uh, fruit, uh, actions, deeds, thoughts, uh, feelings that, that lead us to forsake our sins. No excuses of any sort uh, other than that will do. Verse 9, it continues, he intensifies it in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And now John picks up on another metaphor Right? Not the seed of the serpent, seed of the woman uh, theme, but the one where God is a farmer who plants a vineyard. And Israel are the trees, so they're the vines. And, and if the vines don't produce fruit, then they're going to be cut down and burned in the fire. John here is simply echoing Isaiah 5 and other passages of the Old Testament. And what you have here, to put it bluntly, is a threat of punishment. A threat of destruction. It's like Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I've, um, I'll never forget. My, my, you can sum up my whole uh, public school education in this regard. I, I went through that course in, in American literature, and we read that sermon, and the slant given to it was just atrocious, awful. Look at how awful those Puritans were. And then in my college years, as I began opening my mind to reform theology and Christian truth more, I realized, boy, that was a really biased look at that sermon. It's just awful. Because that sermon gives us God's truth. Is it harsh? At times, yes. But never in a sense that's distorting the truth. 
not that kind of harsh. And we need to hear this from time to time. It's all throughout Scripture, uh, these threats of judgment, and many of them are in the New Testament. We think it's all Old Testament, but it's not. Hebrews 6 is a classic example, uh, and it tends to tie Calvinists in knots. It's kind of fun to watch Calvinists try to interpret that. Hebrews 6 says, we're warned there, if we fall away from faith in Christ, we don't have repentance, and we don't have a sacrifice of atonement anymore. There's threats of judgment like that that John here echoes. He's doing nothing but saying what the Word of God and all the rest of the Word of God says. So he's warning Israel. And if you think historically about what's going on here, this is roughly 40 years before Rome comes and destroys Jerusalem and flattens it completely. The judgment does come. The axe does go through the root of the tree. It's cut down because they don't repent. And they don't come to Jesus. They're given decades of Christ's ministry and the resurrection and the witness to that and the apostles' spirit-filled testimony to that directly to the Sanhedrin. The whole nation hears it. Most of them reject it and the nation is cut down. Difficult news. But God, of course, brings life out of death. He brings a new people to himself out of the old. And that pattern continues. So you have there that that threat, and we need to hear the warning. We need to bear fruits worthy of repentance. That's what we're made for. If if something stops working right and you can't repair it, what do you do with it? It's it's basic common sense. Well, let's move on. Verse 10, there's a dramatic change in verse 10. The crowds say, what then shall we do? And you you can't be completely certain, but you sense in there a note of sincere repentance. Many people, when they're saying, what should I do then? They're honestly seeking. They want to know. Okay, I see. I've got to change. The question can be asked cynically, like, well, what do you think we should do then, preacher? But not necessarily. And we shouldn't assume that just because he's talking to Israel here. When people show repentance... It's very important to accept it, to not doubt it, and and to direct their energy to obedience. That's very important. You see it in the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, right? Peter does the same thing. He tells all of Israel, they crucified the Lord of glory. And their response, they're cut to the heart. What then should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. 3,000 respond. Same pattern. True repentance produces energy. It produces a motivation to change, to do the right thing. That's what we saw in 2 Corinthians 7. That's why we read that passage. It's an immensely important passage about repentance, I think, very often overlooked, where Paul has written this letter calling out, naming as sin something that's going on in the Corinthian church. We're hardly even sure what the details are. It's not very clear. But he's calling out some sin, and the people don't like it. Like, ah, What? But he hears back later that it's, it's worked out okay, and the person has repented, and they've forgiven the person, and, and that's Paul's response. He says, I'm not so sad that I made you sorry and kind of upset you, because you needed to be called out for that, and the forgiveness happened, the repentance happened, that's what had to happen. And, and, and he describes in the, in the course of that what that true repentance is like. 
I don't have it in front of you right now, but you remember the, the passage. Uh, what zeal, what, what uh, desire to clear yourselves, uh, all these things. That, you've got energy for that when you're really repentant. You want to clear yourself with God. And you know the only way to do that is to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ at the cross. But, but, but what do I do tomorrow? How do I live differently? That's repentance. And that looks different from everyone, depending on where we've gone astray, right? The Democrat needs to change her pro-abortion stance to repent. The Republican needs to stop confusing political power with God's kingdom. The poor need to stop envying the rich. And the rich need to give to the poor. That's the one John specifically names there in verse 11. Whatever privilege you have, let's use that word for just a moment, borrow that from uh, modern coin, coin. Uh, whatever privilege you have, if you're a tax collector or if you're a soldier, those people are in a position of, of um, what's the word, potential oppression, advantage, right? And John names it clearly, right? This is exactly why the tax collectors were hated, because of what John says in verse 13. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And that's, that's what every tax collector didn't do in Jesus' day. Rome says you can collect so much, but that amount is only told to the tax collector. So if he can collect more, anything he gets more is his. So tax collectors were rich and they were oppressing their own people. That, that was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus repents. So there's specific things we've got to do to repent. Right? If you're a soldier, you're in the same kind of situation. You're in a position of power where you can make a false accusation and blackmail somebody and, and they can't do anything about it in court and you're going to get away with it. Because you're not content with how much money you're making already. You're going to blackmail people and make more on the side for yourself. There's a lot of corruption like that that sounds awfully modern and it still goes on. Th these are the basics of repentance. Specific stuff we've got to do. Moving on, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, they're all wondering if he's the Christ. That's what that means. They're, they're looking for the Messiah, someone to save them. And John comes right out and says, no, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's much greater than me. And, and, and one thing to, to realize in that is, as we focus on the theme of repentance here, that, that was John's primary theme but parallel with that theme, he's saying, Jesus is coming, he's greater than me. So put those two things together. You don't want to um, downplay either one of those. I think what that means is our repenting isn't going to save the world. What we're doing is we're pointing to Jesus with our repenting. We're saying he's the one we're living by. That's something of what John is saying to just to, to bring all these themes together. Well, verse 19, uh, here's a, a fascinating and abrupt ending to this, this uh, story. Herod, reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things Herod had done, added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. And then, if, we, if you read on the story, the scene quickly changes. It's an abrupt ending. Herod jails John. Lots to learn from that. Repentance and belief does not guarantee immediate success and prosperity. 
We're not repenting so we can get ahead in life. We're repenting because it's the right thing to do and because we've offended God. Life might get harder in the short term when you repent instead of easier. When people are called to repentance, and continue to look at verse 19 here, I'm sticking with the the Herod example here. When people are called to repentance, many, many people get mad. They get angry. They do not like what you're saying they are. And sometimes those people are in positions of political power where they can hurt you. It's exactly what happens to John. Herod, I'm not sure of the exact detail. I didn't study it in depth. Uh, The one thing I I heard uh, quickly this week is that Herod uh, married his daughter-in-law. That's that's what's going on here. He's marrying his brother's wife, but his brother, well, it's, it's confusing. The whole Herod family genealogy is confusing. But he's, he's uh, taken on a wife unbiblically, is the point. And John calls him out. He says, you've done a thing against God, against the Bible. Herod got mad. But notice that John is following a pattern. Again, the whole word of God, John simply, um, the most faithful prophets, reflect the whole counsel of God. And that's what John does. There's a pattern here, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh and says things that Pharaoh doesn't like to hear. Let my people go. You're doing the wrong thing to my people. Elijah goes to Ahab and says the same thing. What are you, what are you doing with these idols in, this, in the nation of, of Yahweh? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, many prophets come to the kings of Israel and tell them you're doing the wrong thing. Jeremiah winds up almost drowned in a cistern because of it. Many people get mad because they won't repent. And if they can't sue you, and if they can't cancel you, they'll block you out of their life. Something like that. Other people, when they, when they don't repent, some people don't get mad, they get sad. And that kind of takes us back to the 2 Corinthians 7 thing. They think that the feeling of sadness is repentance. And it's not, right? And Paul is very clear about that in 2 Corinthians 7. I made you sad, I know. And I wasn't happy about that. But I was happy once I saw that that sadness led to true repentance. Very key to remember that. The sadness has to lead to a zeal to change and to do the right thing. So Herod there jails John. That gets him in trouble, of course. Repentance isn't a guarantee of success. It may lead to more trouble. So there we've gone through uh, verses 1 through 20. And I want to just spend a couple of moments on the Advent theme I have here of living different. What is repentance after all? Repentance is a hard thing first. It's a hard thing. I love the Malachi 3 uh, passage. I think I posted that on, on, the, on social media, the Messiah uh, quote of Malachi 3. Who shall stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, and he purifies silver. Uh, it, it's, it's a symbol of, uh, of deep purification. Not just over the surface, dust, dust the shelf a minute and make it clean. This, this whole thing is filled with dross and has to be purified to its core. Who can stand that happening to you? 
It reminded me of the, the Narnia story where Eustace is the dragon in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And he's trying to scrape the dragon scales off of him. Aslan tells him he has to get rid of that dragon skin. And he tries and tries, but he just can't do it. And he has to just lay down and let Aslan rip into him. That's repentance. We can do what we can do, but we need to let God do the main work. Repentance is a hard thing. Repentance, second, is easy to spot. Not all the time, but much of the time, I think, and again from 2 Corinthians 7, it's easy to spot repentance. Somebody is trying so hard to do the right thing that you can't stop talking about it. I used to do this and this and the other thing, and people around are like, what, what? They just can't stop talking about it. Repentance is often easy to spot. You stick out like a sore thumb because the whole rest of the world is doing something completely different. And you're pursuing a pathway of purity. Repentance is different from the world. Third, the Herods of the world, like I said, are going to jail you or cancel you for bringing up awkward truths. You've done wrong. Try telling, you know, if it's Herod, you know, it was unbiblical of you to marry Herodias, who he's currently married to and is having this great to him relationship with. Hey, you did a, that was a wrong thing. Try telling that to your neighbor, much less your governor. It's probably not going to go so well. There are many truths like that that our world is believing uh, that it just sticks out like a sore thumb. It's, it's so different from the world when, if it, if it was John saying, don't marry your, your uh, brother's wife, we could just as easily say things to our world. Life begins at conception. Terminating your pregnancy to salvage your career or your finances is actually killing a child. Or we might say, a woman cannot identify as a man and pretend to be one. She, she needs to be pitied and persuaded otherwise, not catered to in her confusion. There's this design for living that God built into the world. And it's outside of us. It's not something that, well, whatever I feel and think, that'll be the standard. No, it's out there and we need to conform to it. Even if we, don't, if, even if we want to do something different. That is a different message that the world does not want to hear. We live different. Live different means not just those culture war kinds of things. We also need to get much more personal. And think about your family relationships, your, your friends' relationships with your friends. We, we need to be willing to talk to others when they sin against us. Say, hey, you, you did this, and that really bothered me, or that offended me, or that was wrong. Can we talk about that? We need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to confess when somebody says that to us, that to apologize sincerely when you realize you've done wrong. Great to practice this in your marriage, with your children. Uh, parents who won't uh, confess to their children have a spiritual problem. That's something to watch out for. Or a husband who won't confess to his wife because he's supposed to be the head and lead her. Well, he is, but he's also a sinner. And we have to be careful there. We have to be willing to forgive. That's probably one of the hardest ones, to be willing to forgive. I forget who said it, but if it's... If there's nothing to forgive, if you can just say, excuse me, I'm sorry, it's not really forgiveness. If there's something there that's 
really there to forgive, that's hard. That's hard. We need to make sure that we keep short accounts with each other. That's a phrase I got from the Wilson uh, uh, family out in Idaho. Keep short accounts. In other words, when somebody does offend you, don't let that account go on and on and on and on. Get that dealt with soon. Uh, Instead of just hiding it under the rug, if you can cover it in love and it's not really bothering you, okay, great. That's, that's the rule of first resort. But if there's a problem, we need to deal with that. And we need to train our children in these things too. And I've seen you doing this in your own homes. So this is not a, a, a big correction, accusation thing. This is a keep doing this because you're doing great. But I'm just going to point it out again. A dozen times a day at home, there's some blow up between the little ones, brother and sister, Right? And mom has to intervene, figure out who sinned, what sin needs to be confessed, and have them say the words. Right? I'm sorry. And have the other one say, I forgive you. That's, that's huge spiritual work that you're doing. Keep at it. It can be a little discouraging because it happens again and again and again and again. Right? But living different doesn't mean that we stop making messes. Right? Living different means that we clean each mess up properly. We're going to keep making messes. We're sinners. It can be discouraging because you can see when, when, when uh, little Timmy says, I forgive you, he doesn't quite mean it yet. Right? You can, you can see that sometimes. Uh, okay. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, partly you, excuse me, partly you deal with that by remembering I've got that guy from a year or two ago that I'm supposed to forgive, and I don't quite mean it yet. It's hard to forgive. But we keep coming to church, and we keep confessing our sins here. And we sense sometimes as we're kneeling that we don't quite mean it yet like we should. It doesn't mean we stop, but it's still hard to forgive, hard to confess. We live different in that way, personally. Uh, Last, very briefly, we live different even from the church. Much of the church does not get this or speak this truth. Again, I've been a few different places recently, and I'm I'm registering a new way to talk about repentance in the church these days. New fad, new trend, maybe you could say. It's it's called facing yourself. Look, we've got to just look in the mirror and face ourselves. And And that's the language they're using to say, We've got to see that we're sinners and admit that sin. And they, just, they want to say that without using the word sin, I think. Right? So, so okay, that, that's, that's a good effort. Uh, it's, it's a nice way to diplomatically tell congregations they have to repent. But it doesn't actually name what's wrong. It doesn't, it's very nebulous. Uh, I prefer John's ministry here to telling a crowd to face yourself. So uh, we have to be careful also, a, a lot of churches do this. Uh, um, and again, I don't mean to say this in an accusatory way. These are churches I'm intimately familiar with and know and love. But there's just a desire to skate over hard truths, which is not healthy, right? Uh, often what churches will do is that they, want, they know they should lead their people into a confession of sin, but they don't quite know how to do that. So what they wind up doing is, well, we'll read these scriptures and then the pastor will do an opening prayer that all kind of lightly touches on sin and you know, we, need to be, we need to be better and point us to Christ. Okay, that, okay, 
<laughs> but we need to actually kneel and hear a call to confession and hear the word tell us how we've sinned. And then we need to say ourselves out loud, we have sinned. I think that's much healthier for us. Uh, I know it looks to a lot of people like self-flagellation, but what we're actually doing is reflecting what Scripture tells us to do. If pastors are being faithful, they're encouraging and they're feeding people, yes, but they also correct and they challenge where they see problems. I, I, every pastor has difficulties with this because we want to love our people and we want our people to love us right? We all, ha- we all have this. You have this in marriage too. You see something kind of wrong with your husband. Well, do I bring that up or not? I don't know. It- it's the same kind of thing, right? And it- I try to lean against just preaching to the choir all the time. I, I know I do that some, but I find it too much like tickling ears, right? Even if we're all agreeing on the same thing, right? We- we're all for reverent worship, for example, and we're focusing on that in our men's morning study. And that's, that's great, But like John with the soldiers and the tax collectors, the church needs to push where you see that a nudge is needed. It's similar, kids, to what your your parents do, what your moms do, right? Sometimes it feels like you're at home with your mom and she's just constantly getting on you to get back to your work, right? Or go do that, go do that. And and it feels like she just hates you. You're making me do all these things, right? But that's, she's doing that because she loves you. Right? That's, that's the dynamic that's going on there. We're, we're desiring to turn uh, you away from your sin. Uh, I'll close with this thought and then we'll be done. Uh, part of the purpose of the parish church, uh, part of the purpose of a local congregation, is to come away from Sunday worship, not just recharged with energy, uh, and not even just commissioned to work hard in God's kingdom for another week, but to be reoriented to God's standard. Right? So that we're ready, we're able, we're willing to live different. To live changed and repentant lives in God's ways. So live different by repenting of your sins in all of life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided for us your word. You've come to us in the incarnation of Christ You've come to us through the voices of prophets and priests and apostles. You've given us a book and your spirit dwelling in us. We have so many gifts of yours. Let us not squander them, Lord. Let us use every moment of our lives to bear the fruits worthy of repentance. Not that we are to earn our own salvation. We are relying completely on your son, Jesus but you have begun a work in us that leads us to change and to joy and to prosperity. Uh, Let us uh, take the way of the cross uh, that you may exalt us in due time. We pray all this in the name of Christ, the ever-living word, and we pray as he talks. chapter 55 for our communion exhortation. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Thus far the reading of God's word. Going by usual table manners, we want to wash up before we come to the table. John the Baptist washed Israel as Jesus was about to appear on the scene. If we're going to eat with the king, that we give some time, some preparation to our appearance, to our posture. And it's a basic requirement that we be baptized before we come to this table. But if you think that your repentance earns you a place at this table, you're crazy. The king didn't invite you here because he knew you'd make a good appearance. Like the disciples in the upper room, arguing about who was the greatest, just as Jesus was about to institute the Lord's Supper, (laughs) Jesus has every right to still be completely embarrassed by our table etiquette. We have plenty of spots and blemishes remaining that he's cleaning away. You are here because the king loves you, and he wants you with him. So he has drawn you to want him. Our tastes are changing. We used to like the world's menu. Part of us still does. But repentance means turning away from vanity fair and dining on what God provides, the joyful, everlasting life of his own son. So come and welcome to Jesus. We invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized, who are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in God's mercy, that you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.